morning. It's good to see all of you here this morning. Thank you for coming, worshiping with us here at Ivy Creek. And uh, I just want to go ahead and apologize for my voice. This is about as good as it's going to get. And uh, so, so maybe if it stays this way, it'll be all right. But uh, I was telling the, the, the folks in the first service when I, was in the, when I was in the Navy, part of what we had to do was try to describe signals and how they sounded when you were dialing them up and listening to them and trying to identify them. And we had to come up with creative ways to describe what those, those signals sounded like. And, and uh, that then led us to try to describe different people's voices. And we had this one instructor who had this gravelly voice that was just deep. And, you know, it always sounded like he just, you know, rolled right out of bed. And, and the way we described it was his voice sounded like a Coke bottle rolling down a gravel driveway. And so uh, when I got up this morning and I, and I talked for the first time, that's exactly how I felt like my voice sounded like a Coke bottle rolling down a gravel driveway. I hope you can put up with it today because it's the best I got. And my staff are really hoping that it lasts through the end of this sermon because otherwise Ted will have to come up and finish this whole thing out. If you've got your Bibles with you, and I hope that you do, please take them and turn with me once again to the Old Testament. And this time we're going to turn to the prophet Micah. Micah and then to chapter 5. And we're going to look at, as we continue our series, an Old Testament Christmas. Now we just sang this song. Oh, little town of Bethlehem. And um, uh, you may not know, we, you know, this is one of the popular hymns that we sing every Christmas. And uh, whenever we do that, we, we, we like to think that we understand all those words. But you may not know the song was written in 1868. It was written a couple of years after this Episcopalian preacher named Phillips Brooks had taken a trip to Jerusalem. And he had actually uh, ridden on horseback from Jerusalem all the way down to the city of Bethlehem. And uh, in doing that, he had encountered exactly what he writes about. He encountered the dark sky and the, and the bright stars and, and the various things. And it had made such an impact on him that he later in life uh, was, was writing this song as to be sung by a children's choir on Christmas Eve in 1868. And uh, he wrote the words and he asked his organist to, to actually put the music to it. And, and that all kind of came together and None of that, you're not charged for any of that information. That's just the nerd in me that's coming out telling you about that. But the real emphasis of the song, if you think about it, maybe you've never considered it before, is all the contrasts that he talks about in the song. For example, he, 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 he talks about the darkened streets of Bethlehem. And yet he says, within those darkened streets shine the everlasting light. He talks about sleepy, the sleepy little town. And, and how mortals sleep in the town. But contrasting that, he talks about how the angels are keeping ever watchful, looking for the birth of the Messiah. He also describes the silence, how silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. But he contrasts that silence with the sheer joy and the exaltation of the angels, which sing out of the Lord Emmanuel. All kinds of contrasts in that song. And I believe that that Episcopalian preacher wrote those words in order to draw attention to the goodness of God and to the, the, the wonderful majesty of that gift that we have been given in Lord Jesus Christ. And no wonder then it's a favorite at Christmas time for us to sing it. In fact, I hope it's one of your favorites because we sung it there and we're going to sing it again at the, at the end of the service today. 
And, and, and I ask Will to do that because I want us to, to, to really try to get our hands around those contrasts and understand exactly how beautiful those contrasts are and how they point us to, to, to Christ. But here's the thing. As beautiful as those words are, and as beautiful as that song is, what I want you to know is that the words that are penned by the prophet Micah, here in Micah chapter 5, words that we're going to look at this morning, words that, that are filled with contrasting images, just as that song is, words that point us to the little town of Bethlehem, just as that song did. Well, these words, I believe, are even more inspiring because they are truly inspired by God himself. Inspired by God to be written by the prophet Micah and written to us. Give you just a little bit of background on the prophet Micah and really upon this passage. Um, Micah wrote about the same time as the prophet Isaiah, which would have been a little over 700 years before the birth of Christ. And, and like Isaiah, Micah's prophecies were written to the people of Israel. They were written to people who had sinned against God, who had rebelled against God's goodness and were, and were coming under the judgment of God as a result of that. Judgment that would be carried out by the Israelites being defeated and ultimately carried off into bondage. But just as Isaiah had written, so Micah also writes. He writes to encourage the children of Israel that God would not abandon her and that he would not leave her in exile forever. In fact, embedded in Micah's prophecy is a message of good news, a good news of bright hope. And, and that, that message focuses on the birth of this coming king, this one who will restore God's people, one who would bring them peace. And I want you to know that's good news, not only for these ancient Israelites, but the message of hope that's contained within Micah's prophecy is good news for you and for me as well, who find ourselves in very similar situations. So with that as an introduction and in a way to kind of help set the stage for our text this morning, let's begin reading there in Micah chapter 5. And, and, and might I also say this, while the words that we are going to read this morning, I believe, are truly inspired by God himself, as has always been the case, chapter divisions and verse divisions were not necessarily inspired by God himself. Those come much later in time, and so consequently, I'm going to stop midway through verse 5 because I believe that's a better place to stop, even though the verse continues. But, but understand this, that, that when, when, the, when the whole issue was written, there's a contrast that the prophet is trying to bring out to us. And so I want us to see that this morning. Beginning in chapter 5, verse 1, the prophet writes this, Now gather yourself in troops, O daughter of troops. He has laid siege against us. They will strike the judge of Israel with a rod on the cheek. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time that she who is in labor has given birth. Then the remnant of his brethren shall return to the children of Israel, and he shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall abide. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and this one shall be peace. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. It's for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Our Father, we thank you for your goodness and your mercy. Thank you for loving us. 
Thank you for bringing us together as your children to be able to gather together to sing songs of praise to you. Lord, also to be able to open your word and to be able to, to study it. So Lord, I pray that today that would be our focus and help us to be able to drive out all the other distractions that, Lord, are there for every one of us in this room. We might focus our attention on you, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I pray this and for his name, for his sake, and for our good. Amen. You know, if there's anything that Scripture reveals to us, I believe, again and again and again, is that God, when he accomplishes his will, he often goes about it in ways that are far different from the way that we would normally go about it. He goes about it in ways that are completely different from, from our ways. His values, the things, that he, the things that he strives for, are things different from normally what we value. Um, typically, in our lives, humanity and, and, and those of us in this room, if we're honest with ourselves, we would say that the things that get our attention typically are the bigger and the, the fancier and the richer and the glossier and the prettier and the more colorful. Those are the things that typically attract our attention. They're the things that we normally seek after, but, but the scriptures reveal to us that God, God does things differently. He chooses his, to display his glory in different ways. Typically, he displays his glory through the small and through the weak, through the ugly and through the dull and through the, the drab, through the plain, through the poor. In fact, consider these words from the Apostle Paul. We find them written for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Beginning in verse 27, Paul writes this. He says, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are. Why did he do this? Well, Paul says he did it so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, he gives us the result, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Those verses just sort of hung over me this week as I prepared to this sermon and to be able to speak to you today. They, come, they hung over me because I believe when Micah wrote these prophetic words that I read for you earlier, in chapter 5, I believe that he did so recognizing the contrasts that exist that, that, that are there when, when God chooses to display his glory and when he chooses to call his people to himself and to bring them peace. As I've already mentioned, the passage that I read there in, Matthew, in, in Micah 5 is a prediction not only of the birth of the Messiah, but it is a prediction of the birthplace of the Messiah. But it's a prediction that came 700 years before Jesus was born there in Bethlehem. But entrenched within this prophetic message are some clear contrasts that I think point us to just how God chooses to work and also points us to the hope and the peace that he offers us through Christ. I've entitled today's sermon Christmas Contrasts. And so I want to just point out the three of them that, that I think are, are notable in this passage. And the first one uh, comes there as we look at it today, and it's contrasting cities. Contrasting cities. Verse 1, Micah tells us that he is speaking to a group of people who are living in Jerusalem. The people who are living there in Jerusalem, that in Jerusalem was the great capital 
the great capital of the Jewish nation. It was the city in which the great temple built by Solomon stood. It was the city which, in which the throne of David uh, resided. And it was the city that was the focal point of many of God's promises to Israel. Yet I want you to notice how Micah talks and what he says to the people that are living within this great and this grand city. He tells them to muster their troops. Now, why would he say that? Well, he wants, he wants them to be aware that there is an army who is coming to attack them that is bigger and badder than they are. It is an army that, that will overwhelm them. There's an army that is being sent as a result of God's judgment upon them that will come and conquer and overwhelm them and be able to take them captive. He even goes on to say, he says, the judge of Israel, which I believe is a term that is actually referring to Israel's king. He says the judge of Israel will be defeated and he will actually be struck on the cheek with a rod. Now, when you read verse 1, what you can't escape, is that it is a prophecy of doom. It is a prophetic message that predicts the defeat that is coming Jerusalem's way. And, and what that tells us is that in spite of all of Jerusalem's fortifications, in spite of, of, of all of their military might, in spite of, of all of their rich history, God's judgment was coming. And when it arrived, it would come by way of an invading army who would defeat Jerusalem. That great city that seemingly had everything going for it, a city that, that was the shining center of Jewish life, a city that was strong and stable was a city that in spite of all of that was headed for defeat. So, so Jerusalem is the first city that Micah introduces us to in this passage. But notice there is a, 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 another city there in verse 2 that we learn of. And it captures our attention, and it is the town called Bethlehem Ephrathah. Bethlehem is a word that literally means the house of bread. And Ephrathah is the area in which Bethlehem was located, and Ephrathah means fruitfulness. And so he's alerting us to this house of bread city that's within this region of fruitfulness. But what's interesting is that the, the prophet Micah has to make sure we know which Bethlehem he's talking about. You see, there was another Bethlehem that, that was there in a few miles on up north of Jerusalem in, in the region of Zebulun. But, but Micah wants us to know the Bethlehem that I'm talking to you about is the Bethlehem that's in Ephrathah. Now that even of itself is something interesting to note because if you said the, the name Jerusalem to the people who lived in Israel, everybody knew which Jerusalem he was talking about. There was only one. Everybody knew that it was the center of Jewish life. Everybody would have known, well, I don't need any further clarification of, of what we're talking about with Jerusalem. This is, this is the only one. But when Micah writes about Bethlehem, he has to make sure that the people he's writing to know which Bethlehem he's talking about. Now, when I say the, the name Bethlehem, though there's probably some of us in the room that are thinking about that city that's just a county over, that everybody likes to go take their, their postcards to and their Christmas cards to and get postmarked from there. We might think about that here, but the majority of the world, when we talk about Bethlehem, we immediately think of Bethlehem of Judea, where Jesus Christ was born. That was not the case 700 years before Christ was born. As a matter of fact, notice, notice how Micah describes it. He says, Bethlehem of Ratha, though you are little 
among the thousands of Judah. In other words, when, when, the, nation, when, when the whole area of, of Judah was, was, was divvied out among all the tribes, Bethlehem Rathah was not even mentioned. It was not even written down. Among the hundreds of names of cities, it was not even talked about. Put another way, this little backwater town wasn't even in the phone book. Nobody really even paid any attention to Bethlehem. Yet, as Dale Ralph Davis has written, the primary significance of Bethlehem is in its very insignificance. Why is that? Well, because God says through the prophet Micah, he says, out of you, from you, will come forth to me or, or for me, one who shall be ruler in or over Israel. That's the reason why that little passage there in 1 Corinthians 1 has just sort of hung over this text for me as I've studied it this week. It's because God loves to use the small. He loves to use the weak. He loves to use the unlikely to accomplish his desires. He uses the foolish to shame the wise. He uses the, 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 the weak to shame the strong. It was not the grand and great city of Jerusalem in which our Savior was born. It was a little, almost no-name town outside of Jerusalem, a town called Bethlehem. And what I want you to know is that pattern that God begins here, and Bethlehem is a pattern that continued all throughout Jesus' life. You think about it. He was, he was born to, to this little one-horse town named Bethlehem. But not only that, he was born among the horses and among the cattle and among the sheep in Bethlehem as he was born in the, in the manger. And when we say he was born in the manger, that sounds so sweet when we sing it. It was anything but sweet in reality. It was likely that where he was born was in a little hollowed-out place on the side of a hill where all of the, the cows and the sheep, they went and the stench that was there and where they, where they rested at night. And it says that when Mary took him, she wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger. And that sounds sweet, but that was really the feeding trough in which all of those animals would have eaten. You see, even when our Lord came into this world, He came in in the, in the weak and the out of the way and the almost unnoticeable way. He was born to two peasants, two very poor people. And listen, Jesus' life was one that was marked by poverty the rest of his life. The Bible says that he was a wandering preacher who had no place of his own to lay his head. When he was stretched out on a Roman cross, he was crucified as a common criminal. But when they took his body down, it wasn't placed in his own tomb. He was placed in a borrowed tomb. You see... In spite of all of that, though, what we recognize is that when God, when God shows up to do something for us, He often shows up in the unexpected ways. He, he, he has this pattern that begins to emerge here. A pattern in which we see God ordains the small and the seemingly insignificant and the weak and the foolish and the unlikely. The contrast of cities that we see in this passage then alerts us to the fact that what the Bible also tells us, and that is the strong will become weak, but that God exalts the humble and gives them a name. We see that pattern continue throughout all of Scripture, and He certainly does that with Bethlehem. 
So that's the first contrast that we need to see. It's a contrast of, of cities. And then the second one that I would like to alert you to this morning, though, in this passage is the con- contrasting kings. Contrasting kings. I noted for you back in verse 1 where it says the judge of Israel. I believe that that refers to Israel's king, Israel's ruler at the time of their defeat. And what I want you to notice is that Mike, what Micah says will happen to him. It says that when he's defeated, that, that he will be struck on the cheek with a rod. Now, many scholars believe that this prophecy was fulfilled when Nebuchadnezzar came and invaded Jerusalem and actually took the Israelites captive in 586 B.C. At that time, Zedekiah was the king who, who ruled on David's throne at that particular point. And when he was defeated, Nebuchadnezzar took him captive and bound him. And according to the scriptures, what we find is that Zedekiah was then placed and all of his sons were brought before him. And every one of his sons was slaughtered in front of his eyes. And then after that, Nebuchadnezzar had Zedekiah blinded. So that the last thing that the king ever saw was the murder of his own sons. And then the Bible tells us that Zedekiah was then led away as a captive into Babylon where he later died. Now, I don't believe that Micah would have known all the details to what was going to happen to King Zedekiah when he wrote this prophecy. But I do believe that he understood this. He understood that the king who was there over Jerusalem at the time when they would be invaded would not be able to save the city. He knew that that king would be defeated. He knew that king would be shamed. He knew that he would be made a laughingstock among the nations. But in contradistinction to that king that he alerts us to in verse 1, notice notice how he describes the coming king, the coming ruler that he speaks of in verse 2 and following. Micah says, Out of you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, from you will one who will come forth for me, who will be ruler over all of Israel. Now, many of you know when I start saying this, you're going to say, Oh, man, he says this all the time. And it's okay because I want you to remember it. Prepositions are important. Prepositions are important in Scripture. They give you the the, the direction that things are going to travel. And they they give you explanation. They actually open up the text to you to help you be able to see it from its fullest understanding. And so there's three prepositions in this this verse 2 that I think are very important for us to spend just a little time examining. And the first one is this. From you, from you, Bethlehem Ephrathah will come one. What does that from you tell us? Well, it tells us specifically this, from a literal town, from Bethlehem Ephrathah would come the one, the Messiah. What that means simply is this, is that there would come a real person who was born in a real literal town, the town of Bethlehem, who was the the city of David. And what that meant is that his birth would come and he would be the fulfillment of the promise that God had given to David that that of you there will never be a lack of an heir on the throne. But it tells us that it was a real literal child who would be born in the real literal line of David. Not only that, but it alerts us to the fact that he would live a real literal life. He would die a real literal death. He would be raised with a real, literal resurrection. He would one day ascend to a real, literal heaven where he would sit at the right hand of the Father. 
And it also lets us know that one day he will make a real literal return back to this earth where he will set up and he will rule and he will judge the wicked and the dead. And then one day he is coming for us, really and literally. And you know how I can come out? Because he was from Bethlehem, Ephrathah. He was a real literal king born there. The next preposition is there is he will come forth for me. Now we like the for me. For me is always good. Our, our culture is filled with for me's. We've even taken it to the point where we understand salvation is all about me. It's for me. He came to die for me. He came, he came to give his life for me. He came to die for my sins and to give me eternal life and to ultimately come back and take me to glory. And listen, every bit of that's true. But don't get the cart before the horse. If you're reading in the New King James and even with some of your other versions, you'll recognize that when we see that for me or come forth to me, the me is capitalized. And there's a reason that they capitalize it in, in that version. It's because they're alerting us to the fact that the words that are being spoken are coming from God himself. It is God who is saying that this one will come forth for me. In other words, the, the, the true weight of what Jesus Christ came to do, the true fulfillment of what he came to accomplish was to bring glory to God the Father. His life was lived so that he might bring glory to him. Consider this. When Jesus Christ was born in Bethlehem, what did the angels come and sing? Glory to God in the highest. That's where it all begins. Jesus Christ came for God the Father to bring him glory, to live his life in such a way that it might bring honor to him. Consider what Jesus said and what he prayed in the high priestly prayer of John chapter 17, verse 4. He says this, I have glorified you on earth, having finished the work you gave me to do. That tells us what Christ's mission was. It was come forth and live a life that brought praise and adoration to God the Father. So yes, brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ did come forth to save us. He did come forth to die in our place on the cross. He did come forth to bring us life everlasting. But he did it primarily because he came to bring glory to his Father and to exalt him and to bring glory to him. So he came from Bethlehem. He came for God. And then the third prepositional phrase that gives us purpose, he came to be ruler over Israel. Don't miss that he not only came to be Savior, he came to be ruler as well. He, he's not just this little baby in a manger. He came forth to be king and to be Lord. Robert Raymond has rightly noted this. He says, there is no conflict between Christ as Savior and Lord. He is one and the same time at the same, he is one and the same at the same time. He saves us as a king and he saves us to rule over us. And he rules over all power and authority in order to save and deliver us and bring us to heaven. And that really helps us understand what Micah tells us else about this coming king. We recognize that, that his rule will not be some self-absorbed rule. It will not be a rule that's really only focused on what it's going to bring him and how it's going to accomplish things for him. You see, Israel had plenty of those kings. 
Israel had had plenty of those kind of kings ruling on the throne of David. But that was not the kind of king that Jesus was going to come to be. As a matter of fact, what we, what we begin to see is the description there in verse 4 of the kind of king that Jesus came to be. Notice what it says. This coming king will be a shepherd. He will be one who shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall abide, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. Just as Ray Young sang for us earlier in that beautiful song she sang, that is what Jesus came to do. He came to be the shepherd, the, the shepherd king who would feed his flock. Why that's significant is because as one person has written, he said, most kings have one concern, and that is the selfish grip of their own rule and reign. But Christ, Christ is given the throne of David as his eternal reign. And so as a result of that, when Christ comes, his concern is for the care of his flock, for the care of his people, just as a shepherd takes care of his flock. Now, it is the eternality of this shepherd king's reign that Micah speaks about in the second half of verse 2. He says that this one who was born in Bethlehem, he says his goings forth are from old and from everlasting. What that tells us is that born in that little manger in Bethlehem was, would be the ancient of days. The one who, whose coming and going had no starting point and the one who, though he was divine and born in space and time, would also be, or he was human, born in space and time, would also be divine. One who would never have an ending to his life. This is the one that Micah is pointing us to. So when, when then we come to these examinations of these prepositional phrases that, that, that Micah uses here and to the implications that surround them, what we recognize is that Micah is highlighting two completely different kinds of kings in this text. In verse 1, we meet one who is defeated, one who is impotent, one who is temporary. While the rest of this passage introduces us to one who is victorious, one who is all-powerful, one who is eternal, one who comes to save his people. And he does it as a shepherd who rules over and yet protects and feeds his flock. That then leads us to the third and final contrast that I think this text brings out for us, particularly at Christmas time, and it is important for us to note. Note the final contrast, and it's contrasting emotions. Contrasting emotions. Once more, just imagine that you're the Israelite there in verse 1, and you're living in the city of Jerusalem. And this prophetic message of doom comes to you, telling you of God's coming judgment, and the overthrow of your city, and the ultimate defeat of your king. And that all of your securities and all of your dreams and all of your hopes are going to come crashing down. And it comes as a result of God's judgment against sin. Now just imagine what the conversation is going to be like at home when you go and have lunch. Imagine, imagine the fear. Imagine the anxiety. Imagine the worry of what's going to happen and what's going to take place. That obviously is exactly what would have taken place in their lives and quite frankly, is probably what a lot of us feel at various points in our lives as well. Verse 3 actually reiterates exactly what was going to happen. Verse 3 says that, that therefore he shall give them up. That's a, it's an interesting phrase, he shall give them up. It's talking about God giving, giving the Israelites up. And what he means by giving them up is that he is going to give them over to the punishment that is rightfully due them as a result of their sinfulness and as a result of their disobedience. 
But the rest of verse 3, however, points us to the relief that will come with the Messiah. It's there that we get that beautiful image of, of what would happen 700 years later until the time that she who is in labor has given birth. And then it goes on to say that from there, from there that, that the remnant of his brethren shall be brought back to the children, that would be the children of Israel. And while that had an immediate context of the fact that though the, the Israelites had been driven out and taken into bondage, they would one day return back to their homeland. And that is absolutely part of this. It even has a greater revelation to what happens for you and I. Because you see, as a result of that Christ child who was born in Bethlehem, what we recognize is that the gospel message has gone out to all the corners of the earth. And as a result of going out to all the corners of the earth, what we recognize is, is that there will people be, be people from every nation and every tribe and every language who will one day be gathered together at the very throne of God and that God will rule over His people. In the process of doing that, as we've seen, Jesus will be our shepherd. He will feed us. We will abide with Him. There will be security that we can have there. And so understanding that, understanding these differences in how this king will rule and what he's able to give and the king who was ruling in Jerusalem and what he was unable to provide, we have these competing and contrasting emotions. In verse 1, it's all about fear and anxiety and dread and doom. But when this king who is to be born in Bethlehem comes and provides for his people and shepherds his flock as he is called to do, much different emotion is drawn out. In fact, verse 5 says this, and this one shall be peace. You see, what comes when, when we recognize who Christ is and what he's come to bring is that he provides us with peace and hope and comfort. And those are completely different contrasting emotions. And what it also tells us is, is that our hope and our peace and our comfort doesn't come in the way that most of us probably think. It's not going to come through the bigger, the stronger, the prettier, the glossier, the more colorful, the fancier, the richer. It's not how God works. God works in different ways. As a matter of fact, He has worked through this little town of Bethlehem, through this little out-of-the-way stable. Through that, He has brought forth the ruler who will come and will draw all men to himself when he is lifted up. Therefore, this text, instead of allowing us to seek our hope and our comfort and our peace in other areas, actually what Micah is doing is drawing our attention to the place where true peace, confidence, and hope can be found, and that is in this little town where this little baby was born to a Savior who was crucified and risen again to a shepherd who feeds his flock so that he may keep them forever. That then leads me to my sermon in a sentence this morning. And my sermon in a sentence is simply this. The contrast of Christmas is that God has chosen to glorify himself by saving his people, not by might, but by the lowly and humble child of Bethlehem born to bring peace to those who will receive him. I believe Phillips Brooks, I believe that Episcopalian preacher understood that. I think that's why he wrote that hymn, O Little Town of Bethlehem. 
And, and why he wrote the, the, the words of that third verse, and we're going to sing... We're going to sing through that verse here again in just a minute, but I want you to just contemplate the words before we do. He writes this. He says, how silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. So God imparts to human hearts the blessings of his heaven. No ear may hear his coming. But in this world of sin, where meek souls will receive him, still the dear Christ enters in my friend I pray that if you have not that this Christmas will be the time when you will come to know that peace and that security and that joy and that confidence and that hope that only Jesus Christ can bring you because brothers and sisters this is the word of God and it's for the people of God. Let's pray together.